Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-407 of the Run Run Live podcast. This first paragraph comes to you from Chicago, where I was sipping coffee at an Airbnb, getting ready to go to work, get a convention all week. And it's not perfect having to stand around on my feet and act like an adult all week. But at least it gives me something to do to take my mind off where I'll be in seven days. And that would be driving to Hopkinton, Massachusetts to join 30,000 other friends to run the 2019 Boston Marathon. Bear with me. There may be some time jumps in the narrative in this episode as I work through the week and the snippets of time available to me. And I'll try to give the updates as they pass through my big, dense brain. It may cause us to time shift a bit as we progress, but should eventually coalesce into some sort of thematic narrative. As for today, and this was this was Monday morning? Yeah, Monday morning. I feel good. I'm very happy with my fitness. The only thing left to do is execute a good conservative race plan. Which sounds easy enough, (laughs) but has always been a challenge for me, especially at Boston. I'm known now as that guy who trains well and then has a bad race. And when you see that pattern consistently in an athlete, it's usually mental. Today we chat with Enoch, who is also running Boston, and we have a good conversation around coaching and training and running that I think you'll get some value out of. I don't know what section one is going to be, but it's probably going to be something about the Boston Marathon, some sort of rumination on the upcoming race or the uh, just-ended training cycle, a little bit of both. And section two will be my continuing commentary on Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. I capped off my training since the last time we talked with a 23-ish mile long run. My buddies joined me for the first two hours, and we ran a fair bit of of tempo pace in that first 13 miles or so. 
So when I dropped them, I slowed it way down. I didn't want to practice going out too fast and crashing. I don't need any more practice on that front. So I finished up the distance just fine. I was pretty tired for a few days as I recovered from it. And I managed to tweak something in my left foot on that run. But, you know, nothing that's going to keep me from racing. I finished off the first week of taper, cutting way back on the volume. And my last tune-up was 10 miles with the middle seven at faster than race pace. No problems there. I'm fit. I have good pop. And I went into this week of travel, this final week, under 170 pounds, which is 15 to 20 pounds lighter than I have been racing at historically. And I stopped really thinking about dieting this week at the conference and probably have put five pounds of that back, but I'll eat clean over the weekend to cap it all off. And I'll line up light enough, but I've sort of stopped focusing on that. So it looks like the weather is going to be good old Boston Marathon weather again this year, some sort of rain and wind, but I don't really care. I've got enough fitness to overcome most anything, and I'll take cold and rainy over hot any day. We'll see how it plays out, but it can't be as bad as last year. And even if it is, I'll be ready, both mentally and physically, to adapt. I've run Boston 20 times. This will be my 21st, and it still motivates me, but it doesn't hold the dread or make me crazy like it used to. You know, we're two old soldiers grappling our friendly match over a shared past that resonates with gratefulness for the opportunity. I'm truly blessed. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Prelude, Boston. 2019. Thoughts on my upcoming 21st run of the Boston Marathon. At this point, it's a bit of a tradition for me to sketch my thoughts prior to the race. I do it every year in some form or another. It is inevitably hopeful and optimistic. I guess that's just my makeup. Even those years where I'm injured or somehow displaced. I find a way to dance with this race, a happy dance. It's not all smiles, unicorns and rainbows. I still know what a cruel bitch this race can be. Three quarters of the time that we've tangled, the race has won. It beats me, physically and mentally. But even those beatings are things to be remembered fondly, things to be treasured by old men on long summer evenings. And I remember writing my thoughts before that first race. I was filled with so much hubris. I was so sure of myself. I thought I deserved to be there. And I did not. Boston bent me over its knee and spanked me like the spoiled child that time, as it has many times since. But I learned my lesson from that instructive race and was inspired. Inspired in the true sense, filled with spirit, the spirit of the marathon, 
I transform myself into a deserving athlete. And the next year, on a drizzly April afternoon, Boston patted me on the head, nodded approvingly, and gave me my personal best. I had done the work. I had made myself worthy of the great race, this great race filled with the ghosts of great men and women, like even the most beneficent gods. The Boston Marathon requires its sacrifices, its supplication, and its devotions. Grace is not bestowed on the unworthy or the unbelievers. What the youngsters don't understand is that over time, the sacrifices cease to be sacrifices. They become physical prayers and meditations that hone our spirit. The marathon and its training become our access point to the divine. And this year, I am, as usual, confident and hopeful. I have taken my training to a new level. Not the physical volume or quality of the training, although there has been that. No, I have used a more holistic approach. After my DNF at Bay State, I reevaluated my methods, and I realized that I needed to do more. In the old ways, more was always more miles, more effort. But as a, let us kindly say, veteran or out-of-warranty athlete, that way, the old way, has become increasingly closed off to me. I can't work harder. Instead, I focused on the avenues left to me and focused on nutrition and flexibility. If I was able to handle the volume and quality, not get injured, and take 10 to 15 seconds off my pace, I had to lose some weight and make my body leaner and more flexible and more resilient. And this is what I have done. We will see how this manifests in the race. The training under this new strategy was excellent. I was able to hit faster paces, execute all the hard workouts, and bounce right back. It was a good learning experience. I managed to sharpen another tool from my bag. After 20 years, I can still learn and adapt. And all of this with the realization, or should we say the acceptance, that this is a finite journey of the physical, and at some point will come a reckoning. In this context, in this year, I am quite happy to sit and enjoy my training and fitness for what it is now and not think ahead to some future race or reminisce back to some faster time. I'm enjoying it more. I'm in the bonus time, and I know it. There have been many points in this journey over the last 20-something years where I thought I was done. It's been seven to eight years since the plantar fasciitis sidelined me for 18 months and almost ended my Boston adventures. It's been six years since the bombings that caused me to run a marathon a month for a year to clear my head and expunge that evil from my soul. It's been as much time since my dad died. He wasn't much for unconditional love, but I think he did get some joy from my running exploits. And it's been four years since they stuck a catheter into me to freeze the AFib out of my old heart. I'm a lucky guy. 
The difference now is that I know it. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I'm thankful. And as we come up to race day, I spent the week on the road at a conference, and I gave myself permission to not think about the race, to not worry about counting calories or obsessing on the weather, to be in the moment of the conference and wait for the race to come to me. And now I'm flying back with too little sleep, too much time on my feet, and perhaps too many good beers. Flying back to my city, the hub, the parochial town of Boston. And I'm going to jump on the tee and wend my way over to the Heinz to walk the expo, say hi to people, smile, pick up my bib and pack it all away for Monday. From one trade show floor to another, I probably walked 20 miles this week. I did get out in Chicago for a couple runs. At first, as I broke the hard shell of jet lag and the fog of business travel, I felt sluggish and slow. But soon enough, I was accelerated into some small pickups to race pace on those hard cement sidewalks, and I felt the stirring, the strength in my heart and lungs, the pop in my legs, the peace of fitness that will not be blunted by four days of business excess. I like to quote Tennyson in these preludes every year, once more into the breach. And that's from his martial poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, about the battle in Crimea, where the British cavalry charged straight at the Russian guns to turn the tide of battle. And sometimes we humans choose the hard path, because it is the shortest, the best path to victory. And I don't think it's because we're smart. It's because we're impatient. This is what we've been waiting for, for over six months. And now the test is close. It's upon us. It's going to be hard and probably cruel. But I am running towards that test with all my heart and all my soul. And now for today's featured interview. Why don't you give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do? So I, uh, you know, distance runner living down in Gainesville, Florida, so down here in the south, grew up locally, started running about two decades ago in high school and kind of fell in love with the sport and also at the same time fell in love with coaching, just kind of out of necessity growing up in a small town with not a lot of resources, took it upon myself to learn, coach myself, find other people to help coach, and then kind of coach my teammates as well. From there, fortunately, with uh, some talent and hard work, was able to run at the University of Florida here in Gainesville and uh, compete from 04 to 08, you know, run cross-country and track. Had a good career and continued you know, that passion. But somewhere along the way, kind of just through competing a lot and racing often, felt like I needed to take a break from the sport and stepped away for a period and then came back uh, in 2012 and then qualified for the Olympic trials and trained serious out of Dallas, where my wife and I were living at the time, and uh, coached a group there as well. So kind of that running coaching um, thing as well kind of manifested itself in Dallas, qualified for the Olympic trials and was planning to run my first marathon before the trials, but then an opportunity presented itself to travel and once again left the sport. wasn't really the plan at the time, but I just couldn't pass up on the opportunity to spend some time abroad. And my wife and I lived uh, down in South America, 
Europe, Indonesia, traveled Australia, New Zealand, and then Canada, and then moved. Actually, after all that, didn't really plan to, but just kind of felt like it was time to come back home, uh, live closer to family and my mom and her mom, and ended up back in Gainesville. And uh, before I knew it, took up coaching full-time, started Team Florida Track Club here in Gainesville a couple years back now, and kind of finishing uh, unfinished business in my 30s, coming back to running, but also to finally get to the marathon. Uh, and I did that in December 2017 after about a year of training and ran 218 to qualify for the 2020 Olympic trials. So in it now, training, and I'm really excited to be running my first Boston Marathon here in a couple of weeks. And then the Olympic trials in Atlanta are just under a year out now. Yeah, so I mean, a 218 will put you in the top 20 at Boston easy, right? Depending on the weather and uh, the year and the tailwind and things like that, yeah, it, could, it can put you in the mix <laughs> for sure. I think last it would have been third, but uh, of course, last year is kind of uh, not the average year. So, Yeah, you would have been in trouble last year because you're a hot weather runner. You would have got shredded by last year's weather. When I think about University of Florida, what goes through my head is like uh, Jeff Galloway competing down yep. there. And um, exactly. and then John L. Once a John runner. L. Parker's. Yep. Yeah, once a runner, exactly. Where they're running in the Florida heat. See, I didn't think you were old enough to get that joke, but uh, yeah, for that <laughs> reference. Yeah. And at this point in my training, I don't know about you, but I got to head out tonight and do a, a set of 20 200 meter hill repeats. And that kind of feels like a once a runner kind of workout, right? That sounds like it. Yeah, that's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so how do you train in that heat? How do you train that intensely in that heat? Because you're doing 1,600s. You're doing ladder workouts on the track in the full sun in that soup. How do you do that? Part of it's just growing up here, I think, gives you maybe at least uh, a mental where it's just sort of the norm. So that helps kind of the mental side. And then the physical side, it's really about training correctly through the heat and also picking your races selectively. You know, it's no accident that uh, I'm training for Boston and it's in the spring. So, you know, doing a marathon build over the winter is certainly easier than in the summer. And I do have runners that usually not on my recommendation, but they just end up, you know, either coming to me or they just really want to run, you know, a Chicago or a Twin Cities or something like that. And if you're training for a marathon, it's already really challenging. And then you throw in that weather on top of it. It's a whole other thing. So it, when you train through the summer, you've just got to really make sure you're getting out at the right time. You're really focusing on hydration. And then a big thing I stress as a coach and then also my own training is adjusting your paces and your efforts. For one, the temperature but two, big thing, you know, if I'm out of practice or even preparing for my own run, I'll look at the dew point and see that relative amount of moisture in the air. And if it's the dew point's over 70 or something like that, it's going to be miserable and you just have to slow down and kind of change what you think is possible as far as what splits you should be hitting and times you should be hitting. Do you think there's any benefit to training in that heat? I know one benefit is if you show up at Boston and we get one of those hot years where it's 84, I'm going to die, but you'll do great. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, yeah, for sure. As far as it goes, you know, if you show up to a race and it's hotter weather, you're going to be more prepared than other people for those conditions. But as far as just a general benefit, I think the mental side, it can make you stronger and make you tougher and really appreciate good weather and you just feel that much more comfortable when the weather is nice. And then the other thing is, you know, there are some real benefits similar to training at altitude where you do get those scientific benefits as well, training in the heat. But that's only mm-hmm. if you really focus on 
training correctly because if not, it's just going to wear you down, tire you out, and burn you out. So it's, it's a balance, but as long as you learn that dance and kind of learn to respect it and uh, use it as a strength, it can definitely help you. Yeah, because I know I think we do the opposite side of that, right? We run in the zero-degree howling snowstorm yep. stuff, and what we get is it's not like wearing a um, an oxygen mask like you're doing. It's We're getting plenty <laughs> yeah. of oxygen, but we're burning a lot more fuel to stay warm. So it's, again, you, you're getting used to a different kind of effort level, but it's only useful if you show up and it's a different kind of race, right? Yeah. yeah. And two sides honestly, of the same point. Yeah, I have no idea how people train up in the, the Northeast or the Midwest. Uh, I've never lived through a true winter, and I hope to never experience one, especially as a runner. That's a whole other mental side to it, to get out in the dark, in the cold, in the snow. I hope to never find out what that's like. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, it makes you, <laughs> makes you tougher, hopefully. So yeah. when I was reading through your stuff, you've been through this long journey, and you use the words love, passion, when you talk about running, talk to me about how that love and that passion manifests, right? How is this different than a job or even a calling? How does that manifest? So I think, you know, for me, it manifested at a pretty young age. Through middle school, when I started running track, uh, you know, like many, I found the sport, you know, kind of through soccer, on accident, you know, my older brother was doing it, and I thought it'd be a good way to get in shape and didn't really have any grand aspirations or plans of it becoming a big driving force in my life or even my focus as a sport. But before I knew it, it's kind of leaving soccer behind and just really falling in love with the competition side for sure of running. I think it's uh, very primal and pure to be able to just go out and race other people and, and push yourself. But really, it was the day in, day out of having a practice and something it was consistent, disciplined, and you know, just being out in nature. I grew up out in the woods, running in a state park. I trained many my first year or two, often with my dog, running the trails. And just through that time, I didn't really realize it, but it was becoming part of who I was and my identity, which as runners, that's something I, looking back, you have to have, find that balance between being a runner, that love for it, and also what that means to you and how you maintain that flame over you know a long period and that's something right. that i've experienced and it's a delicate balance because if you love something too much and you're too passionate about it you can't burn yourself out and then need a break from it so i've experienced right. that and something i especially, try to help my runners with yeah especially if you're trying to compete at the elite level in a marathon, that means you're all in, right? You're talking 120-mile weeks and the diet, the everything, right? It's a full-time job. Yeah, every so, decision and, yeah, every, every decision's affected. You're thinking, you know, how does this play into the bigger picture? So, yeah, it's a balance for sure. Yeah, and you look at somebody like uh, Ryan Hall is just publishing a book just now, right? It kind of ate him up. He was mature yep. enough to deal with it. But you see a lot of that with people who are trying to run at the elite or the near-elite level. And you're going to learn that even more as you start to get older, right? How do you sustain that 100-plus-mile week load into old age, right? Um, it used to be in the old days, runners would retire in their 20s because they'd just be done. Now people are running into their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? I'm going to turn 57 this year, and I'm running better right now than I have in a decade. So how do you back off? How do you draw that line? And what do you see with your runners and yourself as you start to age into this stuff? So one thing I'd say is I think you'll never truly figure it out. I don't know if that's the right terminology, but what I'd say is you're always going to constantly have to be stepping back and, like, 
seeing the bigger picture of where you are. Because if you are passionate about something and you love it and you enjoy doing it, you enjoy the competition, you enjoy the training, before you know it, you're always going to be kind of, at least for me personally, and I see it with my athletes, you kind of start to just drift deeper and deeper in. And if you're not reassessing, setting a bigger picture goal, you'll just sign up for the next race or sign up for the next marathon. And before you know it, you're in it and it's year after year after year. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but is it sustainable? And is it like the most enjoyable, sustainable way for the big picture? And like like you were saying, running into your 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, I have runners of all ages competing at Boston or competing at, at, at high levels. And if you're not either working with your coach or being truthful with yourself, it's really easy to just get sucked back in, even if you know that's not the best way or the most sustainable way. And if you find that balance, that's how you run fast. That's how you run your best times or when you're enjoying the sport and you have that balance with your life, that provides longevity, but it also provides performance, which many of us are looking for. But sometimes we get lost just on that performance piece and then you really don't perform well anyhow because you're just too deep in it all all the time yeah and i'll second two things that you said one is that when people start to identify their self-worth with their paces and their times that's the road to hell because you can't sustain that you just can't Um, you have to have a sort of a third-party view of that to not get sucked into that and the other thing i'd totally agree with you which i found in my own practice is you need a coach and the most valuable thing a coach can do as you're getting into uh, as you're aging up a little bit is to keep you from hurting yourself yeah right because your default is always got to be ah i need to run more i need to run harder right and that's exactly the opposite of what you need to do usually yes exactly less is often more you know that's a big thing i preach is it's doing more doesn't mean you're always going to run better perform better enjoy it more so you got to find that balance And like you said having a coach there are people that can find that balance on their own, but it's rare. You generally, you need someone to help that you can at least, it might not even be a coach, it could be a training partner or someone that you know, can kind of keep it real with you and tell you when it's time to take a step back or you find that ebb and flow of that energy to where, like you said, you know, staying healthy is, we all say it's our goal, but then we often do things that are counterproductive to that. So you got to find that balance to make sure that you really are trying to stay healthy. Because, again, running faster times, especially with Boston coming up and that on our mind, you know, generally the most competitive runners are, are aiming for Boston. And when you're trying to squeeze out every second, trying to get in every mile, that's often not the best way to actually perform well at a race like Boston or really at the highest level wherever you are in your sport. Yeah, it's tough. It's a razor's edge. So you went to the trials already for uh, middle distance? I did, I did not. Or so I, you did not, so you're gone. I qualified for the 2016 Marathon Olympic Trials, but through the half marathon. Okay. And then I did not compete. Yes. Yep. Okay. But you're going this year? Correct. Oh, that'll be fun. When when are the trials? They're typically, aren't they in the summer? No, they're February because then they lead into the Olympic Games. So the marathon trials are separate from the track and field trials just because you need that bigger time in between. So they're February 29th. So that's a leap day. Uh, just up the road in Atlanta from where we're at, you know, down here in Florida. So pretty excited that they're in the southeast. You know, should have kind of a home field advantage as far as possibly the weather, but also a big group coming up from Gainesville, you know, only five-hour drive. So we've, you know, got a lot of people from the team that are already booking, you know, hotels and planning to come up and cheer and support. It's a looped course, which really makes for a fun environment as far as spectating and also racing. Yeah, that'll be a hoot. You guys will have a blast up there. 
Yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of characters in that crew. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So moving into your coaching, what are your biggest challenges in being a coach? I would say the biggest thing as a coach for me is trying to find the right balance basically for what we were just talking about. It's been something that I've focused on and, like I said, continually, continuously checking in about is helping people nurture and maintain and manage their love for running and get the most out of it in the long term, not just in one training cycle, not just for one race. It's finding that balance. And I coach at some high school, middle school runners all the way up to people in their 60s, 70s, And then, so there's the age range, and then there's also the experience range. I always have people coming in that are new to the sport or people that are 20-year veterans to the sport. So finding a way to, one, bring that group together because we train here together, we do workouts together, and it's a great balance to have those different levels of experience and excitement levels, but it's also about making sure that people are practicing the sport in a healthy way, uh, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally and keeping people where they're excited and they're motivated, but they're also not just full bore all the time because that leads to burnout or injury and things like that. That's, I'd say, a big a big focus. And in this day and age, often people hire a coach for a performance side, especially a coach like myself that's performing at a high level. But my goal is to really, if I can do what I just said before, as far as nurturing that love and building that, that correct practice, the times will come and people will, will run fast. And it, they won't just run fast today or tomorrow, but they'll continue to run fast for years to come. Yeah. And that long-term view is something you have to learn because especially when you get into longer distances like the marathon, it could be an 18-month cycle to get a good performance, right? It's just uh, yeah. longer. Yeah. And you get an injury, fine, back off. You get the rest of your life, right? People, yeah, and people that's, have that's something we love. Yeah, we as runners, like that takes time to learn, and then continuously. At least for me, uh, I see it as a coach, but also personally. Like you just said, if something happens, to remember that it's not the end of the world. It's a long process, and I think in our society, we are very results oriented. I'd say. Generally, all of us, we think, what was a successful marathon build? We usually think that means a successful marathon, right? What we do at the end. Of course, for me, you know, I've only run one marathon, but I'm more speaking from experience of racing many other distances. We often value the training we put in based on the result we get out. But like you were just saying is the result we get out may not be that race or that season. It could be later down the road. You know, it's all cumulative. It all builds towards future performances, but also just future, you know, life enjoyment and existence and getting stronger and improving your practice. Yep, exactly. So what's the big difference between coaching an elite versus a mid-packer versus a back of the packer? So before I started coaching full-time and got Team FTC going, I primarily had worked with kind of high-level youth or elite runners that I was trained with and just, you know, they needed a coach. And from time to time, people would kind of reach out to me for, obviously, advice or coaching, but I really wasn't coaching a big range of ability. So coming in, I wasn't really sure what to expect or how to approach the everyday runner or the beginning runner, and if, if the things that I had practiced and, you know, as a coach and as a runner would really apply to everyone else. But I've been really surprised over the last couple of years to see that we're all pretty much the same. I think the elite runner is viewed as having some different mentality or different practice, or they're just working way harder or training smarter or something like that. But really, 
I don't think there's a big difference between the mid-pack runner and the elite runner if they both are living the sport in a similar way. The only difference usually is DNA, your makeup, maybe your age, and that, that ability. But usually... Some of my best, I would guess, students of the sport, like I don't determine how well you train and how much I respect who you are as a runner by how fast you can run. And that's kind of yeah. the approach I use as, as a coach. More, what, what's your experience level? What can you handle? Where are you at in your running? That's regardless of what pace you're going. Yeah, I think the big difference I see in people who come into the sport late who didn't do it in school is they really underestimate what they are capable of, Right. They don't know because they've never done it, so they don't know they can do some of this stuff. And it comes as a big surprise to them when you show if they can be shown what they're capable of, right? The human body's amazing, yeah. right? I think that's really powerful, and I think most people would view not having competed in high school or in college. If you asked a runner, especially a runner that didn't compete in high school and college, do you wish you had had that experience because then you'd be a better runner? I think almost everyone would say yes. And there's some truth to that, but on the, what you were just saying is that's not necessarily the truth because often you set preconceived notions of what your talent is and what your ability is from those early years. And those may have been limited by factors such as poor coaching or burnout or, you know, like things like that, or just development that you were young and your body was changing or something like that. So you can often limit what you think your ability is. And so what, what I see with these runners that didn't have those experiences, and like you said, find run, running later in life, is they don't have those preset notions of what's possible and kind of what their linear progression is. And so if you help them formulate what that plan is, and if they really trust you as a coach and see what you've done, then you can tell them that, look, you are capable of this. And they seem to be able to believe it almost easier than someone that had those past experiences or past scars if it was something negative. Yeah, yeah, they have a different set point. Yes. Yeah, it's super interesting. What have you learned, right? Because the most, when you start coaching other people, you learn a lot yourself. So what's the most important thing you've learned? Uh, I would say... For me, especially, that's kind of on the forefront of my mind right now at Boston, just a couple of weeks out and it being my second marathon at first Boston, is I don't feel like a second-time marathoner, a beginning marathoner. It's not because I've necessarily read books or studied the course or anything like that. It's that I've lived through the last couple of years, 50-plus marathons, just coaching people from the beginning of the training cycle through the race, you know, writing the race plans, just experiencing the emotional side of it. We were just in Houston, and I think we had 11 or 12 people run the marathon a couple months back, including my wife. And we had you know, 10 people qualify for the Boston Marathon out of that group. So experiencing that allowed me to not just learn the science side or, you know, or the practical side, but also that emotional side of, of what it takes to prepare and then what it takes to be in the race and experiencing that. For me, I learn as a coach mostly by doing and experiencing it and being around it and experiencing it through my runner. So that's been the most powerful thing. Uh, and the focus really has been for me and for the group really on the marathon recently. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot and drawing from as I come into, into the race. Yeah, so um, as we move towards the exit here, I've run Boston a number of times. I'm from here. You got any questions for me for your first Boston? <laughs> <laughs> the hills, are they as bad as people say they are? Uh, no. The hills are tiny. If you're having a good race, you won't even notice them. The challenge is, okay, and I'm sure, sure you've heard this a hundred times, is that 
people go out too fast on the downhills because they're jacked and they're looking at their heart rate, they're looking at their effort level and they're going, huh, I'm doing great, right? I'm just jogging along. But what they don't think about is the fact that their legs are hitting the ground, right? They're jamming their legs into the ground. And so then when they pull into the hills, it flips on them and their legs go. They're stupefied. They go, what happened? My legs just gave up. (laughs) And it's you really have to hold back, right? So when you tell people go out easy, they go out easy. They go out at an easy effort level. You actually have to pull it back from that because you're running downhill and you're slamming those legs, right? So it's not easy effort-wise, it's easy leg-wise. You really got to cycle the legs and stay in your pace early and on. You think and keep, I wouldn't start... Keeping the, cadence, keeping the cadence up a little bit as well, kind of really making sure... Yeah, yeah really watch your form. Yeah. Really watch your form. And I wouldn't start racing until you get into the hills, right? Yeah, so as you, as, you, as you pull into that first hill around mile, I think it's, uh, I don't know, what's it, 16 and a half somewhere when you go over um, yep. 128 that first hill, then you can start testing and see what you got, right? Maybe drop it five seconds or something like that and then see how that feels because you got from like 17 to 20 there with the three or four hills in it. If you can accelerate through that, the last 10K is basically downhill and flat. You can cruise, right? So your goal is to come off the top of heartbreak with some juice in your legs. It's not a uh, fitness or an effort level race. It's a leg race, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Well, it sounds, sounds like a piece of cake. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's uh, kicked my ass enough times, so I'm hoping to run <laughs> smart this year. And it, I'm hoping to uh, get some good weather for a change. That would be nice. Yeah, that would be very nice. I said if it's in the in the 30s and raining, I, I plan to just coach. I'm going to play the coach's car that I, the team just needs me to support, and I'll live to fight another day. So <laughs> I'm yeah, hoping for we better need, weather we, last year. Yeah. Yeah, we need that you, tailwind you run here last or whatever year? that was. I did, yeah, did I did. Oh. So I ended up probably 20 minutes off my pace. We stopped trying about halfway through and just sort of jogged it in, but it was rough. One other question I have for you, and it's, uh, it may be something you've experienced that I think could be useful to some of my runners, but also I think runners in general, is do you have any advice or experience if you've qualified for Boston and you now find yourself quite a bit fitter than where you qualified, so you're going to be in a corral that doesn't really fit where you're at. What advice would you give to that runner? So usually people end up the other way around, where they qualified, they were really fit, but when they show up for the race 18 months later, they're slower. So I think you're probably okay in the case you're talking about, because everybody in your corral, if you're qualified, is going to be jacked up, and they're all going to take off at 10 to 20 seconds a mile too fast. That makes sense. So, yeah. so just hanging with your corral is probably okay in that sense. You're almost fitter. in a good, a good, yeah, you're almost like in the perfect spot because essentially you're going to be running the correct pace for that first half, and they're going to be going too fast. Right, right. And so, for example, I'm in a corral that's probably eight minute miles right now. And those guys will light out at like a 7.20, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to have to be the guy that holds back to an eight-minute mile so I don't <laughs> crash, right? So that's typically the challenge. And the other thing is okay. people get to Boston early and they do a lot of walking around and a lot of – it's a giant um, expo. So they typically um, spend too much time on their feet. They burn themselves out that weekend. Now, that doesn't help with – because it is. It's a leg race, right? Not a fitness race. Makes a lot of sense. So. Uh, you bet flags, making sure you're coming in good. That's a a big thing I've heard from uh, other experienced Boston marathoners is you really need to almost over taper the legs and really make sure those final weeks that you're 
rested, come in fresh, and that that you know that puts you in a in a good place as opposed to other marathons. Yeah, you want to be fresh and rested, but you also need to be sharp because you have to be ready to run hard kind of all the way through. So it's all like yeah. you said, the legs, the legs are the key. Yeah, I mean, I'll do uh, sort of you know minute pickups or thirty seconds, a lot of fart legs in the last couple of weeks, right? Just to keep the legs turning over, but not doing any heavy load. Sure. So exactly. So anyhow, yeah. we, no, we, um, we, oh, I was just going to say, you know, uh, often people will will really try to prove their fitness in those final weeks, like with the longer workouts and the long runs, and avoiding that, like you said, perfect advice, the the short fart legs, and just kind of keeping things sharp but making sure you're not beating up the legs. Yeah, especially coming up from Florida, you got no hills down there, right? So people are going to be <laughs> have to be very careful on the downhills especially. We've got <laughs> so from once from once a runner, so we've got a few hills, but not many. Yeah. So um where can people find you? Uh we are team underscore FTC on Instagram or you can find me uh Enoch Nadler on Facebook. And we actually have a uh, a mini series that we just released episode one that I have on my Facebook uh, that's you know public. Um, working with a guy actually out of Boston named Justin Keith, who's a talented producer, and we uh, just released the first episode, and he'll be coming up to Boston, kind of documenting that experience, and then also the build to the Olympic trials. So if you want to check that out, you can go to uh, Enoch Nabler and find it on Facebook, and it's a pretty cool, cool little series. So cool. that's that's where we're at. Yeah. Cool. All right. So I'll let awesome. you go. Thanks for coming on and uh, enjoy your time up here. It was a pleasure. And yeah, hopefully I'll see you in Boston. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Now and the body. This is my third installment of a series of commentary on Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now. And today I'm going to comment on how the teacher regards the relationship between the physical body and the concept of finding presence to access your true self in the now. So there's really no narrative in this work. He bounces around a lot and comes back to some topics. He comes back to the thinking mind versus the present mind many times. And other interesting topics he throws a brief chapter in and just moves on. So you really have to pay attention and read each bit as a standalone thought. You can't read it through like a novel. You have to sit back and think about some of these things and maybe take some notes like I'm doing, let it sink in. Previously, we discussed the notion that most human suffering is caused by not living in or being able to access the present now. And Eckhart spends a lot of time talking about how dwelling on the past or projecting into the future is a construct of the thinking mind that only causes suffering. And his solution is to find ways to be in the now. Only being present can you find your true self or your inner being that will ultimately bring you peace and ease your suffering. And he returns to these themes often. One of the next and obvious questions you might have, and I certainly did, is how to resolve the apparent conflict of focusing on the now with setting goals and working towards some worthy thing in the future that requires focus and effort. Well, it seems, at least in our current Western culture, that there's much focus on goals and goal setting. And in fairness to the goal-setting culture, their intent is to create an emotional gap between the present and the goal. 
In essence, the goal is designed to create negative or positive tension that drives a person into action. The same emotional tension gap between the present and the future that can be characterized as suffering. It seems to me that the goal-setting crowd, they're just leveraging this tension gap tactically, on purpose, to create the tension or the suffering in your head to drive you or inspire you to action to relieve the tension. So Eckhart talks to this a bit. He says that goals are fine as long as they're rooted in a strong sense of self or generated from a strong sense of self. If those goals emerge from a strong sense of self found by spending time in the now, then you're more likely to own them and more likely to energize your whole being to achieve them, although the achievement will likely no longer be the emotional driver or will take a different form. It may be that we can see this as replacing the negative emotional tension of creating a future goal to drive us into action, right, to get out of suffering. We replace that with a positive emotional energy of using our core self to create positive emotional tension to inspire us into action. And it's nuanced, but it does resolve the conflict. And to be fair to the goal-setting gurus, they do talk about understanding and owning your core purpose before setting tactical goals. And then next, he briefly speaks to how these glimpses of your pure self that you find in the now, that you get when you spend time in the now, may be considered glimpses of the divine. Now, you could write a whole book on this thought alone, but he just does a, he does a flyby on this thought when you find your purpose, your true self in the now, this is divine, i.e. it's a glimpse of or the presence of God with a big G. And for those of you with the proclivity to worship a particular deity, this is where the concept of being intersects with that. Your ability to find the now enables you to find and interact with your personal version of God. And like I said, that's a deeper topic, and he flies right by and moves on to the next topic, which is near and dear to we endurance athletes, the relationship of that present being and living in the power of the now with the corporeal existence of the physical body. And I do think about this topic a lot. On the one hand, I see how my endurance sports pursuits have transformed me physically and mentally over the last 20-odd years, but on the other hand, I understand the physical body is not transcendent in itself. It has been the tradition of most religions and philosophies to see the physical body as something crude and animal-like, something to be transcended to reach that pure spiritual plane. In most cases, there is a spirit or a soul that is just riding around in this flesh corpse looking for a way out. Anything to do with the physical body is to be hidden, avoidant, and shamed, right? You're used to this. How do we square that concept of the body full of sin and dirt with our own experience of that body as a holistic partner in a transcendent life? Anyone who crosses that starting line with me in Hopkinton on Monday, or even better, the finish line on Boylston Street, will tell you that we go way beyond the physical. 
Our physical is a rocket ship fueled by the spiritual. Much to my surprise, Eckhart resolves these things exactly how they resolve in our experience as endurance athletes. And I will quote directly now, the body can become a point of access into the realm of being. Instead of slamming or shaming the body as some dirty animal legacy to be transcended, he sees it as a conduit that may enable access to the state of now and being. And I don't know about you, but that is exactly my experience. He does note that the body in itself is just a physical shell for the spirit. Certainly the worship of the body itself without the spiritual it can be a perverse form. Trying to interpret the now through the filter of the physical will give you a distorted signal, potentially. But how can this physical body become an access point? We all know that a long run in the woods on a spring day with a dog is a great way to glimpse your being. The author's methods are more mundane, but will still be familiar. He talks about the classic meditation technique of stopping the thinking mind by focusing on your body. In the simplest form, this is breathing meditation. It is also that meditation technique where you focus on one body part at a time and work your way top down or bottom up, relaxing and moving your focus as you go. And here I will quote again, being can be felt in the first instance as the invisible energy field that gives life to what you perceive as the physical body. So, as you practice this body meditation, you may even feel your body starting to tingle or glow. And this is the that energy of the now or the being translating through the body. It becomes a holistic inner body awareness where you connect with the being. So I love the way he resolves this apparent conflict between the physical and spiritual. The body is not some dirty animal thing to be transcended. It's your partner in finding that inner peace in the now. And for me and you, I'm sure, as an endurance athlete, we have supercharged this access point. We have spent so much time listening to our bodies that we are able to access that inner peace and quiet the thinking mind on command. And we already know that one of the best ways to access that now, that being, is through a deep understanding and partnership with our physical shell. I like that. It works for me. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have probably trained hard and you're ready to race after listening to the Run, Run, Live podcast, episode 4-407. Now you just have to execute. <laughs> Here we are on Saturday morning, and I'm pretty tired after a week of hard business travel. I got up early to get to the airport Friday morning, quarter of five Chicago time. By the way, while I was out there, I did manage to jog down to the lakefront and take a look around at the, the Chicago start line and finish line. But my flight got into Boston yesterday around noon, and I navigated the public transport, dragging my bags over to the Heinz to get my bib successfully. 
And then I walked through the expo, and it was packed. A lot of people in there. But I think it was smaller than previous years. A lot of useless crap. <laughs> be honest with you. I wish they'd get more relevant stuff in the expo. Who needs more crap? Like, let more races in. I'm particularly disappointed with the official gear. It seems like the Adidas folks are designing for a different audience, not me. I mean, I don't need shorts with an abstract picture and a unicorn on the ass. I mean, who wants to look at my ass? Get off my lawn. <laughs> so I bought a Boston Strong hat, you know, the blue hat with the yellow Boston Strong on it at the Marathon Sports booth. Took me forever to get home. By the time I got out of the expo, it was rush hour, rush hour on Friday in Boston, and I couldn't even get on any of the inbound Green Line trains at the brew. I kept getting elbowed out of the way by aggressive young people. So I had to leave the station and drag my bags down to Park Street, about a mile walk, and then over to Downtown Crossing to jump on the red line. Lots and lots of time on my feet and walking this week. Gosh, I probably walked 20, 30 miles this week. I need to get the heck off my feet. And I am <laughs> avoiding getting on the scale. I had a, had a rough week, but uh, it's too late now anyhow, right? Not worried about that. Checking the weather this morning, understanding that it changes every day, every hour, every minute here in Boston. And there's no guarantee that the weather predicted today will have any resemblance at all to the weather on race day, even 48 hours out. But earlier in the week, they were, they were, everybody, everybody was freaking out. They were saying it was going to be like last year. And the BAA sent out an email yesterday, I think. They said they were going to speed up the start and smush wave four into the back of wave three to get folks out of Hopkinton sooner. But as of this morning, it looks actually like great racing weather. Yes, it will be rainy and windy, but there are some key differences from last year. One is it's going to be 20 degrees warmer, so instead of high 30s, low 40s, it's going to be 60s, 50s and 60s. And instead of a 30 mile an hour headwind, we're going to get a pretty stiff tailwind for the most of it, it looks like. So, my friends, it looks like we will be buffeted, but we will set the sails, we will rig the flying jib, and we will point our small but rugged craft downwind to the finish line on Boylston Street, and I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die, so Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. All right, here we go. Get rid of this, move these over here, get a little coffee. Oh, man. Let's see here. Ooh, I get the sexy voice this morning. That's lack of sleep. <laughs> Hello, my friends, and welcome. Beneficent. 
how do you say that? Beneficent. Beneficent. That's it. Beneficent. In most cases, there is a spirit. or a... Give me like 30 seconds, all right? Give me like four minutes. Ah! I hate when it does that. Take two.